So the Fuchs said they cannot meet tomorrow and they could only meet today. And so I am going, and they can only uh, meet on the phone. So I am going to call them and we will record and discuss our discussion tomorrow at our regular time. But you guys are a lucky few that are getting to join in, in the live conversation. So here we go. We're going to call, uh, I'm gonna call Doug Fuchs, here we go. Hello? Hi, is this Dr. Fuchs? Hello, it's Nazi. can you hear me? Yep. All right, yep. great. I did uh, yep. open my app and so a few people are listening and uh, I hope that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, so people, so some people are listening right now. Where are you? Are you recording this for tomorrow? Is that my understanding? Yes, but uh, meanwhile, there are a few people listening live. Okay. Yeah. All right. are, so, are you charging extra admission for those people? <laughs> no, they are just paying attention. I, I couldn't get it, you know, enough advertisement out uh, last minute. So they happen to be paying attention and available. So um, oh, okay. they got to participate. So okay. just for the uh, people who are listening, if, if you don't know Lynn and Doug Fuchs, you absolutely should. Um, they are, you know, just pioneers in special education for sure. Um, Lynn and Doug Fuchs are both endowed professors emerita at Vanderbilt University Institute Fellows at the American Institutes for Research. Each of them conducts pragmatic research on instructional methods for improving the academic outcomes of students with learning disabilities, on assessment methods for enhancing teachers, instructional planning to address student diversity, and on the cognitive and linguistic profiles associated with reading and mathematics development. Each of them has published more than 500 empirical studies in peer-reviewed journals, and each of them has been identified as one of the most frequently cited researchers in the social sciences. Their contributions to research and practice have been honored with a variety of awards, including the American Educational Research Association's Distinguished Contributions to Research and Education Award, and the Harold W. McCall Jr. Prize in Education, which celebrates innovation, inspiration, and impact in education by recognizing the outstanding leaders who have devoted their careers to closing gaps in and accelerating an educational opportunity for all students. So I really appreciate you talking with us today, uh, Dr. Fuchs and Dr. Fuchs. Yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. And I, I really like how you did that, Nazi. Could you read that again? <laughs> so, so how how um how do you want to do this? You want to um do you want to read the questions? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not going to read them word for word, but you have them yeah. in the link, and um, I just kind of like you to know a little bit about our background in Texas. Um, you may already know, but you know, just keeping in mind that a lot of our listeners are um, definitely you know acting as uh, gatekeepers to special education that we come are coming from a PSW model background um, of diagnosing. Most of us have been using Flanagan's model for probably like last 14 years. And, and some of us um, are starting to move towards 
what we call a CSEP model, which um, core selective model, which is still a, a PSW model, and the fact that Texas has recently had a change in our operating guidelines where we took out the, the word significant variance and put in place the federal definition. At the same time, two years later now in October, we have gotten some guidance and a guidance document that says that we can use either RTI or PSW method, and it won't say what kind of method to use. So that's kind of where we're at in terms of like RTI and implementing with fidelity. I don't think like a lot of us have had experience in in all of the that you have had experience in, in looking at schools who are operating with fidelity. And so I just thought, and I, I found it interesting that you sent me this article about sort of, I felt like people were critiquing RTI and trying to discredit it and you were trying to defend it. So I just thought you, you could give us a short summary on you know, the, the report from 2015 and um, sort of your, your overall kind of responses, not getting into the details, but just sort of speaking to why people are kind of d trying to discredit RTI. Okay, I'm going to give it to Lynn, um, but okay. before I do that, can you again quickly, um, quickly describe uh, or explain who the people are who are likely currently listening and who will be listening? There, everyone is from Texas, and everyone is is a gatekeeper of sorts. But so, like, what kind of positions uh, are are these folks holding? We're called educational diagnosticians, so we have a certification um, to do level C testing. And so we do IQ tests and achievement tests so we can diagnose learning disabilities without the help of a school psychologist. We only bring school psychologists in when we're questioning autism or uh, emotional okay. disturbance, more emotional okay. behavioral types of things. If it, We do have three years of, we do have to have three years of teaching experience before we go through our two-year master program to become a diagnostician. So it's basically a, the the field of diagnostician does come from the special ed um, departments. You know, it's not from a school psychology department. We're not we're, we're not supposed to be like psychometrists. We're supposed to be from the school of special education. So, right. um, yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, here, here's Lynn. Hold on. Okay. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Hi Great to meet you. <laughs> yeah. Glad to be on the call. Yeah, so we can talk a little bit about the RTI evaluation study that was done by the Institute of Education Sciences. We, as you mentioned, we did a critique of that uh, report, and uh, that was published in Exceptional Children. People can access that if they want to, but uh, we'll kind of give you an overview. So we, we were critical of the study that IES reported, and uh, we, want, we wanted to point out that there are some important points for readers to consider when they're looking at that report. And the first is that the report is an evaluation. It's a quasi-experimental evaluation that uh, involves the impact schools that are described in that report. And impact schools were schools that were selected for the study because they reported that they were fully implementing RTI. So that was their self-evaluation. There are also what's called reference schools in that report. 
they were not a part of the evaluation study. And that's confusing to a lot of people that there are these two groups of schools and one seems to be like the RTI schools and the other seems to be like the control group. But there was no control group in this study. The uh, Only the impact schools participated in the evaluation of RTI. So I just wanted to, to point that out. And uh, interestingly, the independent variable in that evaluation of RTI didn't include the provision of intervention. The independent variable was the school's use of screening to identify kids for intervention. So they didn't necessarily provide intervention to anybody, but if they used screening tools, they were considered the RTI schools. Mm. And what the evaluation did was compared students in those impact schools who were just above and just below for identifying kids as in need of intervention. So that's an important qualification to anything that they would be uh, concluding about RTI. We're only talking about screening and we're only talking about whether the kids who were just above the school's cut point were significantly different than the kids just below the cut point on the study outcomes. But we don't know uh, which kids did and did not actually receive intervention. In fact, the study authors didn't know who actually got intervention. So, so there are other important limitations to the study design. For example, in order to be included in the analysis, the impact schools had to report that they had at least and one student at tiers. So one student at each tier, tiers one, two, and three. But only 89 of the 143 impact schools met this criterion at first grade, which was the grade level that the RTI study really focused on. It's not clear how much the schools re really adhered to their own screening criteria for identifying kids to get intervention in, in allocating actual interventions to children. So uh, the only piece of information that was verified in the study was whether the schools actually applied a screening cut point to their screening da data. Mm -hmm. That's a, a, a very limited study. And they found that, you know, students that were just above the cut point were not significantly different than students below the cut point at first grade on the reading outcome measure. But what we can conclude from that finding is that screening for the purpose, if schools go ahead and screen, conduct screening for intervention, that won't improve student outcomes. But what we can't conclude is that uh, anything about is the effects of actually providing intervention to students as part of an RTI system. And we can't conclude anything about the effects of RTI as a system that integrates the use of assessment with intervention. So I'll stop there. Um, mm. But I think that there are other study, other uh, weaknesses in the IES RTI evaluation that we discuss 
in that paper. And our main point is not whether RTI is good or bad or effective or ineffective. Our main point is that we can't conclude very much at all on the basis of a report that got a lot of attention. And on the basis of that report, a lot of schools began to think that the RTI system, an RTI system does not work well. So our point is that it really, this study really did not evaluate whether an RTI system works well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let, me just, let, me, let me just uh, uh, go over just really briefly, because I know we've got a lot of questions and we don't want to spend yeah. too much time on anyone. So the, the use of a cut point to, to uh, identify kids just above the cut point versus kids just below the cut point was meant to, as a substitute for doing a true experiment, a randomized control trial, where one group of kids would be in an RSD in a uh, RTI school and other kids would be in a non-RTI school and that kids would be randomly assigned. I mean, you can't do that stuff, right? You can't do that stuff in schools. So they use what's called a regression discontinuity analysis and that they did exactly what Lynn said. They identified kids just above a cut point and below and they compared the kids above to the kids below on the presumption that the kids below, uh, two presumptions, one, because you're comparing kids very, very close to the cut point, uh, above, just above, just below, they're basically equivalent kids. That's one assumption. The second assumption is that the kids below would get RTI, the kids above would not get RTI. So they were looking for, the working hypothesis was that if RTI was successful in these so-called exemplary schools, you would see the kids below the cut, just below the cut point, outperforming the kids just above the cut point. Mm-hmm. And, and what they found was uh, either uh, at, at three different grade levels, the first, second, and third, they found that that kids in the in the in the just below the cut point, who presumably were getting RTI, although there was no documentation of that, did wor- did worse than the kids above the cut point who presumably were not getting it. So a lot of people interpreted this study to mean that RTI, when applied, actually hurts kids' performance. And uh, that is just a completely, as Lynn said, a completely unwarranted conclusion. Mm. Right. And we actually presented at a professional meeting with the authors of the IES report. And in that presentation, they agreed with uh, the points that we made in that exceptional children paper. Mm-hmm. There's another part of that paper. It's a, it's a 380 page document. Right. There's, yes, I know. I spent are, all Saturday reading. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, the, the bigger part of it is not about this horse race between the kids just below versus the kids just above. Instead, it's a description of a rich description of what each of these schools, 140 some odd schools across the country, actually did in the name of RTI. And the takeaway message from this part of the report is that most of the schools did not do RTI. 45% of the So most of the schools did not implement RTI in a fashion that would be recognizable by your listeners, us, 
and almost anybody else who knew who knows anything about RTI. Mm-hmm. Implementation was horrible. And the, the second part of our paper in Exceptional Children was exploring the feasibility, the practicality, the desirability of implementing a multi-tiered system of supports and services when, as we know, as, as, as your listeners I'm sure know, a lot of schools, not all, but a lot of schools, have difficulty implementing one tier successfully. Right. So in that paper, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, we can move on. In that paper, we raised the question whether it made sense for all schools to be required to use three and four tier uh, systems of, uh, of, of support and instead pursue a simpler uh, framework of, you know, two tiers. So the, the report was curious because it claimed that, that RTI was not successful on the basis of really stupid analyses. And so that conclusion can and should be dismissed. On the other hand, their descriptive data suggests that a lot of schools probably were doing a very poor job despite best intentions and hard work uh, because they just couldn't they just couldn't implement it. Mm-hmm. So that's what that whole thing was about. So you took a different conclusion from the report than what they did, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you're making so many connections. When I I did like a three part series on disproportionality, and you know, people there's some authors doing a lot on uh, deficit thinking, and you know, they went out to these schools and tried to find you know who was who was actually approaching deficit thinking and trying to to um, make an impact and change, you know, the way people thought about the different interventions and MTSS support systems that they were putting in place. And they found that like the schools that were bragging the most that they do everything right were the ones doing it actually the worst and the ones that were like uh, admitting that, I guess, humble in how well they were presenting, you know, how well they were putting everything in place were actually the ones that were most committed and they're, you know, and dedicated and trying the hardest and actually doing a lot of great things. So it kind of sounds like that's the same thing that was going on with RTI too, that, you know, these schools were saying, oh, we do RTI with fidelity and we're the best and all of that. But in truth, you know, there, there is still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, and we suggest in that paper that RTI or MTSS with many with multiple tiers is probably not a smart thing to do in some schools. When you have very under-resourced schools, trying to do MTSS with three and four tiers is a fool's errand, mm-hmm. and it's better it's better to try something more modest and to do that more modest thing better. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings me to my next question, because a lot of people would argue, well, if we're not fully implementing RTI, then we should use discrepancy methods. We should use PSW methods. We should look at, you know, significant variance and that, those sorts of things. And I, you know, we've interviewed Jack Fletcher before, and he has this hybrid method. My understanding is a hybrid method is that you do formal testing for achievement and look at whatever RTI data or that you have, and then actually do um, 
the formal achievement testing, but it doesn't require an IQ test. Um, and actually they, they don't, if, if an IQ test is done, it's done for two purposes. One is um, A, maybe to, to rule out intellectual disability and B, um, to just inform some strengths and weaknesses that may be informative, but not determinative. Then, you know, we got our operating guidelines and it says, it, it's a, you know, uses the federal terminology, which I had a, like an aha moment when Dr. Burns explained to me that the words pattern and strengths and weaknesses were in the, in the federal law before PSW methods were created. So, but then we got this guidance document from TEA and that just came out in October, 20, you know, just recently, October, 2023. It has the, the joint principles which has the eight agreed upon principles from several different organizations and number, you know, principle number seven is you may use IQ tests to rule out intellectual disabilities or to inform strengths and weaknesses. And then at the end of it, after it talks about all the principles, it says you may use PSW or RTI. And it's like, these two, it polarizes the situation. It's like, whose camp are you in? Like, we got to choose a side. You know, why can't we just use research and use, you know, talk about theories for what they are and you do use the tools to talk about the theories and then use, use the data for what we have and explain, you know, the reliability and validity of the data. Besides like having to choose a camp, I feel like torn you know, and I, but before when I was introducing this, I had Michael Jackson's song, you know, want to be starting something like it's like you always got to be starting something. We got to choose a side now, you know, we're stuck in the middle. And I just like, is it fair to polarize this process of diagnosing learning disabilities? And does the way we assess sort of drive school reform in any way? Uh, it, it's fair if, if your goal is to uh, have as much acrimony as possible and confusion. Um, <laughs> I will tell you that in principle, in principle, RTI, I'm, I'm talking about RTI. I mean, RTI is not the same thing as MTSS, okay? Right. But for, for this discussion, let's, let's just talk about it as if it's the same. RTI in principle makes some sense that, you know, we, as everybody knows, one of the important reasons why RTI got a lot of support from practitioners and administrators and researchers and so forth <clears throat> was that for many, many years, there indeed was a kind of rush to judgment about kids with having, having disabilities, especially learning disabilities, so that if the child was not doing well in the regular classroom, there was a, there was a meeting of the minds and, and the kid and, and the only other game in town besides the general classroom instruction with special education. And so the fear and the concern was that a lot of kids were going from general ed to special ed without due diligence, if you will, without, without really trying to determine whether these kids had been given a shot at doing well, doing better, because they were not receiving good education in the general classroom. And the the, the underperformance or the low performance was blamed on the kid instead of the actual, you know, quality of instruction. So response to intervention was meant in part to address this perceived widespread problem. And so RTI 
practitioners were responsible for implementing generally effective interventions for these kids and to monitor, carefully monitor their performance. And if, if after a reasonable period of time of implementation, there was no evidence of benefit, then there was greater confidence Then one could have a little bit more confidence that the reason for the poor performance in the general classroom had more to do with the kid than the instruction. And so, but what's really important to understand, and, and few people really understand this, is that at the crux of RTI is the assumption that the intervention that whoever it is who's doing the, you know, more intensive instructing, that the intervention itself is effective, is generally effective, it's a generally effective uh, treatment. And you guys are diagnosticians, so, so this analogy should make a lot of sense. When you use tests to learn important stuff about kids, you are assuming or you look to make sure that the tests you use have reliability and validity. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be using unreliable tests. You don't want to be using tests that say it's testing X, but in fact it's testing Y and Z. You want valid tests. The same is true for RTI. In RTI, the test is the intervention. And you need a valid intervention. If you have an invalid, if you use an invalid, or that is to say, ineffective intervention, and the child does not respond, what do you conclude? Do you conclude that the kid has a serious learning problem? Or do you conclude that, well, the intervention was probably not as effective as it could be? You don't know. So you have to, you have, to have confidence in your intervention, the effectiveness of your intervention, just as good diagnosticians have to have confidence in the validity of the tests that they use uh, with kids. And the dirty little secret is that, unfortunately, many, many, many applications of RTI use ineffective interventions, Mm -hmm. invalid interventions, thereby thereby rendering conclusions uninterpretable of the, or, or the results, uh, producing results that are uninterpretable. So partly for that reason, Lynn and I have come to believe over a long period of time that the use of RTI by itself is a very bad idea. And there, there is a very strong argument that can be made that uh, it's RTI as a single means of trying to diagnose is bad science and it's bad practice. So even when it's done well, even when it's done well, I would say that it might be a necessary but insufficient means of, of identifying kids for, uh, as having a disability or having learning disabilities. So what would we do on top of the RTI? In addition to RTI, would we do standardized tests, look at several multiple measures, look at the school yeah. history? 
Yeah, I, I, I'm speaking for myself now, not necessarily for Lynn. I, I would argue that there really does need to be some cognitive, some standardized normative uh, test. Uh, I'm not necessarily arguing for the, the, you know, a full version of the uh, WISC uh, or one of the other intelligence tests, but some some cognitive measure that uh, can determine whether we're talking about a kid with average or better aptitude. And because if you don't do that, then you're not preserving the uh, learning disabilities uh, or the dyslexia category. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are people like Jack Fletcher who are very, very, have been for years, very, very much against IQ, mm-hmm. uh, IQ testing, I should say. And I think a strong argument can be made that that IQ testing or some kind of cognitive measure used with, you know, good RTI procedures and perhaps other measures should be part of the diagnostic battery. Mm-hmm. Now, but it, in terms of how you use the IQ would also be a a big factor in terms of, you know, are you using it to, to paint a picture of, you know, how a kid works in a, in a, like a laboratory setting, your school office where, you know, you can kind of pick apart a task into its individual demands or, you know, how they do when they're trying to put all those tasks together in a classroom. I found that helpful. I can separate out, well, they can learn cartoon pictures of fish, but then when it gets to letters that have directionality to them, they struggle or, you know, I can, I can pick out sort of those kinds of things to describe, but I'm not choosing anything from the IQ to say whether or not they have a learning disability or not. So there's like a difference between a determining factor versus an informative information. Right. Which, what? I, I, well, look, you know, I, I, I was a school psychologist uh-huh. and I gave many, many, many uh, tests of various kinds. And I have respect for what could be, can be learned from the administration of various tests. So I think that it can be used in, as information gathering about kids. It can also be used to help determine diagnosis and classification. Mm-hmm. But let me make a distinction, and this may not sit well with people who are listening. The PSW, I think, again, can be perhaps helpful diagnostically. Mm-hmm. Instructionally, I have some concerns. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you want to get into that, but I think, I don't think that there right now, I don't think that the research evidence is strong enough to to support a kind of processing approach to instruction. Mm-hmm. And uh, Devin Kearns and I did a review of a lot of studies, uh, and this was published in 2013 in Exceptional Children. And if people are interested, they can go to that article. And, you know, and we approached the question, you know, without bias. I, I, I believe, you know, I believe strongly in the importance of cognitive assessment. But it, it was pretty clear to us that intervention programs based on PSW, 
were, for the most part, unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. So, um, mm -hmm. go ahead. Well, I was just saying that one of the things I've been trying to do is, I mean, Dr. Spies raised me on <laughs> CBMs at the University of Maryland, and I came here and just, you know, I was talking about where's your CBMs? Where is anybody doing these CBMs? And nobody was doing them. And I just kind of gave up for a while. Um, right. And then, you know, as these new things were coming out, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe now, maybe now we'll start using CBMs and have that help us drive instruction. And one of the quotes, I think it was Lynn um, actually wrote this in the, the CBM book that's like a tribute to Standino. I think she wrote it with Jenkins, one chapter with Jenkins, and um, it said this quote. You know, I, I posted on Facebook today because I it's just is so speaking to what I've been experiencing since I've been putting CBMs in my in my FIEs. Now, I I still do IQ tests, I still do achievement tests. I'm using all that to inform me. I just inform, but I feel like I need to include a CBM even if teachers are not doing them, just to be an example and give a baseline. And, um, and, it, and it's not, again, not a determining factor, but one piece of information that add, you know, a multiple, um, among multiple other pieces of information. And the quote was that the CBM sensitized teachers and schools to the need for prevention services for students who are at risk for poor learning outcomes. I just become way more sensitized to, wow, this, how important automaticity is and accuracy and, you know, just all of that really gave me a lot of good information. So I, I appreciate that that quote a lot, uh, for sure. Good. Yeah. Lynn, um, Lynn smiling. <laughs> okay. And I wanted to, you know, bring up, you know, you brought up the Dyslexia, International Dyslexia Association, and I've been trying to get somebody from the International Dyslexia Association, or, or Dyslexia, you brought up Dyslexia, not the association, but... I noticed in the 2019 joint principles documents that uh, there was. This is the, is this the uh, NJCLD, National Joint Committee on Learning Disabilities? I don't, I think so. Um, yeah, I think, I think it is. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, where does this, who, who, where does this come from? Um, yeah, the, the, the National Joint Committee on Learning Disabilities is about 15 organizations that have a lot to do with or some to do with kids with learning disabilities, children mm -hmm. and youth with learning disabilities. Well, 11 of them have their seal on one of the main document. Uh-huh. And then four of them dropped out for the follow-up yeah. explanation. Yeah. Like, is, do you know why they dropped out or how can I best find out more about where the points um, of contention were? So I think, so can you tell me which, I think you may have mentioned it in your, in your question, mm -hmm. which four dropped out? The IDA, ASHA, decoding dyslexia, and the LDA. And I, I, okay. I've talked to the LDA, um, Monica mm -hmm. McHale Small, and yeah. she, she's, I guess, I've interviewed her before, and I followed up with her, and she said she felt like she was being pushed into an RTI only approach, which yeah. my impression RTI only would be like you only do CBMs and CBAs and you would not do, you know, you would not do commercialized formal testing. So that that was my understanding, but I never got an a understanding of where you would use how where where it would how people would feel about a sort of a more hybrid approach. Right. So I think that 
I can't speak, I can speak for LDA because I'm close to LDA. Uh, I know that what uh, Monica was saying to you is correct, that they felt like it was a, they were being pushed to agree to a RTI uh, definition and only RTI definition of learning disabilities and they could not abide that. I suspect that was also true for some of the other organizations. Mm -hmm. So see the thing, the thing, the thing is that for some people, for a lot of people actually, who don't want the use of IQ, they don't want schools to distinguish between underachievers who might get the LD label uh, and underachievers who do not get the LD label. They see that label as uh, mischievous, not constructive, not leading to better practices. And so they want very much to eliminate uh, IQ and every other cognitive uh, approach to help practitioners uh, identify such kids. A lot of, you know, people like Jack Fletcher, before he came up with the hybrid, hybrid approach, he was for RTI. He was for doing RTI. And he felt, and others, many others felt, that with proper instruction, the 5 to 6% of children and youth in K-12 schools across the United States could be reduced to 1%. Right. Mm-hmm. So implicit was a kind of devaluation of not just IQ and other cognitive measures, but of the LD construct itself. So what has been in play over the years in terms of the back and forth between people who want just R- uh, who just want RTI and others who want more more of a mix, a hybrid uh, uh, approach that includes IQ or cognitive measures is partly a fight over the validity, the use, the the, the importance and the the benefit of keeping LD as a, as a disability category. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think central to the discussion is sort of a the idea of the slow learner. Like, I, I feel like if you if you consider, and I, I don't, I guess when you were talking about underachievement, you may be referring to that. But I, I read also in some of your articles, you, I know there was one where you talked about how um, you could have kids who are thriving steadily thriving and that's just you know maybe they're not going to be performing as well as everybody you know like average average but they're still thriving as the as the years go on and then you have your kids who just don't thrive and you you have this dual discrepancy i guess concept that we have dual discrepancy we've practiced dual discrepancy but we're talking about something totally different <laughs> uh and yeah, iqs it's, it's confusing for sure yeah you know that the term is used in more than one way but what we meant by dual discrepancy was a way of using cbm data in which kids are identified as non-responders um only when they not only score below the criterion threshold, but also are not making adequate progress. So what that would mean, and, and you're in using your word thriving, they're making progress. And that's commensurate with 
progress in the school, but they're still low relative to other children, but they're learning. And in our framework, those children would not be called non-responders. That you, you have to qualify in two ways. One is having absolute low level performance in addition to not making progress. And the idea is that, I mean, if you take, you know, the height charts um, that doctors show you when you have children, uh, there's a spectrum of heights. You know, not everybody is going to be six foot two uh, when they grow up. They're going to be short and tall people. But um, children are not seen as having a growth problem um, unless they're low in an absolute sense. You know, they're below the third percentile in height. But they're, but also they're not growing, uh, and in an adequate, uh, in, in the expected amounts. So, but they're going to be short people. But if they're still growing, then there's nothing inherently problematic about that situation. And, you know, the, the, uh, the same idea is in, uh, our use of the term dual discrepancy. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the kind of basic concept of a slow learner does exist in our, with an RTI model, uh, which I, I caution, I hesitate to use the word slow learner because it's already been yeah. determined to be a problematic term, but right. it's just a way different way of looking at it. Well, and these children are not uh, slow learner, you know, it sort of suggests that they're not making steady progress. There are children, you know, who make steady progress. They're in a, in a classroom where instruction is good. Uh, they're getting maybe good intervention and they are growing. They're responding to the instruction that they're receiving, but they haven't closed that achievement gap, but they are still growing at a nice rate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think those are all important things to consider because I think that that sort of idea is kind of central to a learning disability is that it'd be more than just somebody who's only under low achieving that it be right. somebody who's low achieving and has struggle struggles processing what but not that one test on one day could help demonstrate right. that right. I mean, you can't yeah. no. if you want to test learning learning is a dynamic moving right. faceted thing so we have to also use assessments that are dynamic right is what i have learned from from reading everything that y'all put out so i really appreciate that <laughs> um <laughs> so let's see the other questions i had were sort of more about prevalence i know and and also about how do because we, we have to put a a say a, a quote in our reports that says this child has received adequate instruction. And I know you guys kind of describe adequate instruction as that um, if more than 10 to 15% are actually, you know, are, are poorly achieving students, then probably um, it's that, that there, the, there's not adequate instruction going on. But then we, a lot of us are sitting in schools where there's more than 15% of kids already in special ed. So, 
do we just not qualify kids because we say you've got so many kids that needing special ed that we need to hold on a second and see how can we improve our, you know, the adequacy of our instruction. And then, you know, we have the National Council on Learning Disabilities who says one in five, I mean, that's 20% should be in special yeah. education. Like, what do we do with all this, these prevalence conundrums? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that, you know, which percentage, you know, a school settles on uh, in terms of uh, classroom norms or expectations for what the teacher can accomplish. I think the 15, 10 to 15% that we fixed on was based on our research with peer assisted learning strategies in classrooms, you know, that had a range of instructors, instructional quality. Um, still, you know, we uh, were in few classrooms that included peer assisted learning strategies where there were more than 15% of a classroom that was not making progress. And um, that was that was one way of coming, you know, selecting a percentage. But there are going to be uh, schools where there may be 20%, and there are probably a lot of schools where 10% is all that will be tolerated. The, the bigger point is that an RTI system can't function very well if classroom instruction is not effective for the vast majority of children who are in tier one. Uh, if, a, if a school has to rely on 45% of the kids being in tier two, which by the way, was the percentage in the impact schools wow. in the RTI national evaluation, mm -hmm. um, then we need to, before we send all these kids to intervention, we have to work on the quality of tier one. And, and that's an important point um, because if we flood tier two, then by definition, we're not going to be able to provide quality intervention in tier one. We just have too many children who are there. And that's, that's what I was getting at before, uh, earlier on, when we were talking about that paper that I sent you, the right. critique of national evaluation. Um, <clears throat> when, when you've got under-resourced schools um, that are, uh, despite best intentions, producing large numbers of low achievers in their general classrooms, to try in those schools <clears throat> to implement three and four tiers in a multi, in an MTSS system <clears throat> makes no sense. Um, and much better to use available resources to really try to strengthen the general class instruction mm -hmm. and, and, and drive down, if you will, the percentage of, of, uh, low achievers <clears throat> in, in those classrooms by using evidence-based curricula and, and professional development and coaching and various other things. Supplemental programs can be uh, brought into can be brought into that classroom. Uh, supplemental programs, just as an example, peer-assisted learning strategies and reading and math. There, there are others. There are other evidence-based supplemental programs to fortify, to strengthen 
the the instruction in the general classroom and, and only when you're able to drive down that percentage to a more reasonable amount should you be thinking about tier two and maybe tier three mm -hmm. so i guess that that puts us in a torn position too you know of course we're always we, we just got out of corrective action six years of child find you know for child find and you know one of the feedback was pieces was you know, don't you should have a kid in an RTI for so long and when they're not making progress, but, you know, of course, a lot of times we didn't know that if they were making progress or not. And then finally, you know, until it got to so bad that, that there was a referral eventually. Um, but I, I just almost feel like me on the ground, you know, and, and I do get, you know, if I get a lot of referrals, I still do feel like with RTI, there's no, entitlement to RTI. You know, if you have special ed, there's an entitlement. And I, I feel like special ed was meant to encompass all students, the entitlements of all students to a free appropriate education. So if, if a child, if we say their program is RTI, then, and it, it which I hesitate in saying that because I've, I don't want people to think that kids in special education aren't also in RTI. I mean, it also, Kids in special education are a big part of, you know, the whole RTI process. But I just, in some ways, I feel like special education was created as the safety net or this mechanism to enforce school improvement. Is it, or should we not think about special special ed in that way? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. I I understand what you're saying. I think that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we've not yet talked about special education. And I will tell you at this point that MTSS came into being after several years of a lot of attention given to RTI, <laughs> nationally I'm speaking about, when more and more people became frustrated that RTI was only being, or for the most part, was being discussed within the context of disability identification, mm -hmm. uh, mostly LD, but disability identification. And a lot of these critics of RTI were saying, look, what we're talking about here is not just a, uh, an issue of diagnostics, of identification, disability identification. Mm -hmm. What we should be talking about, they said, is school reform, general education reform. And that's what led to MTSS. The emphasis in MTSS is not on disability identification. It is not on special education. In fact, there are a lot of people who, who believed, who said out loud that if MTSS is done well, we could probably get rid of most of special education. For the, um, for the mild disabilities. Yeah, for mm -hmm. the quote unquote mild disabilities, which was like 80% of all kids with disabilities. Right. And, you know, I mean, in retrospect, that was a pretty silly thing to believe and say. And one of the things, and, 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 and in addition, it, in a sense, left special education off the hook because no one was speaking about special education. Special education should be, uh, historically, uh, it has, it was always meant to be, and currently it should be for kids who whose learning needs uh, are so severe 
that they need an intensity of instruction that goes well beyond what a general classroom can provide. And special education, like general education, should be held accountable for being of benefit to those kids. Uh, but by relation, there's another irony, and that is that you know children who go through an RTI or MTSS system and don't uh, and demonstrate inadequate response to tier two and tier one and then tier two intervention and are identified for special ed through inadequate response, a hybrid model, whatever the procedure is, if they've gone through an RTI process, then in a lot of schools, ironically, those kids are no longer eligible to be part of the RTI system. Instead, they have to spend all of their time in the general education classroom. And mm -hmm. that's, that's very unfortunate. And, and a lot of schools and teachers have come to think that that's a requirement of the federal law. Mm -hmm. And if by no means, that is definitely not true. I've definitely seen that. I mean, well, yeah. in the district I had before, they actually pulled kids out for intervention, you know, tier two interventions a lot. Like they had an interventionist for reading, they had an interventionist for, write, for, for math. You know, kids would go to these interventionists and as soon as they get into special ed, well, they couldn't go to the interventionist anymore. And the, and the special ed teacher was saying, well, I do inclusion support, so I'm coming in the classroom to help them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then they and weren't getting that help, you know. I mean, they were yeah, get, only getting that yeah. help. It wasn't, it, it didn't look the same. <laughs> no, it, 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 I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, evidence that inclusive instruction can't compete with quality, intensity, scientifically structured interventions. Mm -hmm. So children who uh, have learning disabilities certainly require intensive intervention and for them to be, you know, confined to the regular classroom instruction mm -hmm. is just, you know, doesn't make any sense at all. Right, right. Well, I'm going to wind it down. It looks like we're coming up on the hour and I just really wanted to many times over really thank you and appreciate all of your uh, insight because these are some questions i've really been struggling with a lot and i just i want to make sure i get a balanced view or a balanced perspective when i'm you know talking about these things and i think really you have helped me you know to balance out these perspectives a lot in this conversation so well and, and I, i'll also say that doug and i have uh, been sitting here shaking our heads a fair amount, recognizing that you've really done your homework you're very, and you're very knowledgeable. And well, so you. it's a, been a pleasure to talk with you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I just, before I leave, I wanted to let everybody know that you guys, you have some great uh, materials available online for, because I'm always talking about CBMs, um, for May's um, reading. So, um, I know that those are not reproducible, but um, they are available on, on the website, right? <laughs> on the website. Right. Yeah. Right. They are. So. Um, and we also, we also have PAL material uh -huh. and 
uh, reading interventions and math interventions that are, you know, validated programs. And they're, uh-huh. they're very affordable because uh, there are no royalties and no institutional indirect costs. And uh-huh. so they're just just what it costs. Um, right. Yeah, if you can find it under Keith's research group. Okay. Great. I'll look for that. And I, I hope to be sharing, you know, as much resources on CBMs as possible with my, with, with the diagnosticians in the future. So. Great. All right. Well, keep, keep up the good work. I think it's great what you're doing. This clubhouse thing is a great idea. And sorry that we couldn't join on the app. Yeah. That's okay. Um, we made it work. <laughs> we, yeah, but hopefully we made it work. Yeah. So uh, thanks. Thanks for thinking of us. Glad to talk with you and good luck. Keep up the good work. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.